Hello, 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 everyone, and welcome back to the Know It All podcast. I am your host, Riley Sue, and I am so excited to be joining y'all for yet another episode. Last week, we covered Jeanette Rankin and her historic career as the first woman elected to U.S. Congress. And I asked in a poll on Spotify, which there are polls every week if you don't see them. Uh, But I asked in a poll on Spotify if you guys would be interested in the Granite Mountain Speculator Mine Disaster. And we will be covering that later in this season. Uh, So be on the lookout in April. But it's still Women's History Month here in the U.S., which means we're not going to be stepping away from our women-centered topics this week. And we're going to cover the Salem Witch Trials today which was something that you guys actually voted for over on Instagram a few weeks before this. Uh, And I was originally thinking about covering the Pendle Witches as well, but since they're from across the pond in England, I figure we'll save them for another time and instead keep it domestic this week. We're after that American brood, home style, freedom chaos, not any of that red coat, God save the king shit. And just like last week, there is lots of stuff to sift through here. So let's go ahead and get into it, get into the background of the time and location, because as always, it's best to know where we've been to know where we're going. It's time for a witch hunt. I think we've probably all grown tired of that term in the modern era, witch hunt. It gets tossed around a lot by politicians and celebrities who are often trying to skirt blame for issues that are just so clearly connected to them. But where did it begin? Before the 20th century, it was most often used in its literal sense, meaning to hunt witches. But in a U.S. Senate subcommittee over the Bolshevik propaganda in 1919, it was used like this. Senator Overman said, what do you mean by witch hunt? And Mr. Ray Robbins replied, I mean this, Senator. You're familiar with the old witch hunt attitude, that people get frightened at things and see boogies. Then they get out witch proclamations and mob action and all kinds of hysteria takes place. The use of the term in this way continued through the Cold War and into its present use. And though many of the people who use this term as a cop-out would likely argue against the stance, I think that saying you're the victim of a witch hunt is just wrong and out of touch with what these words were originally tied to. Before the end of the 15th century, witchcraft and heresy were not linked in the eyes of the church or the public. If you aren't familiar, heresy is where you hold an opinion or belief that's contrary to orthodox religion, typically against Christian doctrine. Famous heretics include Galileo, Isaac Newton, and Joan of Arc, to name a few. The new link between heresy and witchcraft began with a theory of diabolical witchcraft. That is, that in order to practice malefice, like using religious objects to curse a neighbor, a person must first enter into an active pact with the devil. Forming a bestie bond with the devil was most definitely on the church's list of hard no's, so once the idea that these practices were heresy and not just country folk doing rituals and ceremonies that they had practiced for centuries, it pretty much all went to hell in a handbasket. The idea that malefice required linking up with the devil and witchcraft should be considered heresy were ideas that spread through Europe by a book called the Malleus Maleficarum, which you're not going to convince me isn't a spell by itself. But this book was actually one of the best-selling books in Europe during the Middle Ages and beyond. Literally the only thing that outsold it was the Bible. Malleus Maleficarum translates to Hammer of Witches, which would be a sick band name. And it was first published in Germany in 1487. The main purpose of the book was to be the final answer to the argument that witchcraft didn't exist and to educate judges and magistrates on processes of how to find and convict witches. Seems like a stone-cold work of nonfiction to me. No wonder this thing can compete with the Bible. Nothing but facts on that bestseller shelf. The Hammer of Witches was republished 26 times through the early modern period and is a vivid snapshot of just how wholly these people were convinced that witchcraft was not only real, but was an active and persistent threat to their daily lives and ultimately their salvation. The height of witch hunts in early modern Europe came in two waves. The first wave came in the 15th and early 16th centuries, and the second came in the 17th century. Witch hunts were seen all across early modern Europe, but the most significant area of witch hunting is considered to be southwest Germany, where the highest concentration of witch trials occurred between the years of 1561 and 1670. 
But this isn't an episode over European witch hunts, and our girl Salem was a late bloomer. The first accusations in Salem came 20 years after this concentration in Germany, in February of 1692. So we know the background of witch hunts that would have been happening during this period, but let's go over some background on the Puritans in Massachusetts at this time. The thing that is most central to the Puritan lifestyle is that they believed that the Bible was God's true law and it provided a plan for living. Their church saw living with God in your life as something that had to be achieved through pious living and was only possible under the influences of the church authorities. Puritans stripped away anything they thought was frivolous or what we would call extra, and they wanted their God straight no chaser. This was an attempt to not only purify the church, but also their own lives. Each church congregation was to be individually responsible to God, as was each person. The Puritans left England because they saw the Church of England as beyond reform and thought that their lifestyles and ideas would be best safeguarded in a new land. Most of the Puritans landed in the New England area, where they formed colonies and settlements. Faced with harsh conditions in their new home and constant struggles against local native groups, the Puritans had their work cut out for them. They were not the cutesy little kindergarten pilgrims that you're thinking of. These people engaged in full-out war with the native populations. They committed massacres against the tribes that shocked the First Nation peoples killing men, women, and children, and leaving few survivors. Native warfare practices at this period were more about taking hostages and having fewer casualties, so this was horrifying. King Philip's War began in 1676, and many Native people were forcefully removed from their lands, being either relocated or incarcerated. By 1670, there were 52,000 colonists in New England, outnumbering the indigenous population three to one. So, life in New England definitely wasn't easy, but the common religion, needs for survival, and feelings of persecution united the Puritans. I really want to drive home here that religion was everything to them, and they saw all their actions as a path to their next eternal life. The laws and customs that they formed in their new communities were directly descended from their religious teachings, and as much as God made them fearful, he motivated them too, a push and pull that would give the witch trials its quick but lasting impact. They interpreted scriptures harshly and placed emphasis on conversion rather than repression. Conversion was a rejection of the worldliness of society and a strict adherence to biblical principles. And while repression was not encouraged directly, it was evident through the Puritans' actions. God could forgive anything, but man could only forgive by seeing a change in behavior. Actions spoke louder than words, so actions had to be constantly controlled. Any straying from the normal way of Puritan life would be met with strict discipline and disapproval. And since church elders were also political leaders, any errors in church were carried into your social life as well. The devil was behind every deed. Constant watch needed to be kept in order to stay away from his clutches. Words of hellfire and brimstone flowed from the mouths of powerful and trusted ministers as they warned of the persuasiveness of the devil's power. These speeches were elegant, well-versed, and exciting renditions of scripture, with a thick thread of fear woven throughout the fabric to keep things in order. Young children were quizzed on this material at home and at school. Great efforts were made to warn community members and their children about the dangers of the world. With a religious motivation, they were incredibly well-educated for their time and were a very literate society. Reading of the Bible was necessary for a pious life, so things like math and writing were not as emphasized in school. The education and indoctrination of the next generation was important to further purify the church and create perfect social living. This cycle of guilt and constantly looking for an eternity-stealing danger led to a scandal of epidemic proportions. Before we dig into the accusations in Salem, let's go ahead and take a quick break. All right, welcome back. Okay, so one thing that I learned while researching, and y'all, I'll be learning a lot, is that Salem was actually divided into two parts, Salem Town and Salem Village, or Salem Farms. 
It's all still Salem, but the Salem village was more rural and the population was made up of mostly poor farmers and Salem town was seen as a more successful port where its people were wealthier and were more likely to be sailors or merchants. With the town experiencing great growth, things in the village stalled and the farmers of the village wanted to have more control over their economy and taxes. In order to shift some of this power, the village petitioned to build their own church and they were denied several times, but in 1672, the petition was granted under the condition that the new church would still be overseen by the church in town. Later, in 1689, as a result of King William's War, refugees from New York, Nova Scotia, and Quebec were sent to Salem Village. This placed a strain on resources and aggravated the already harsh ties between the village and the town. There was also the issue of Salem Village's first minister, Reverend Samuel Paris, who was quickly becoming known for his rigid beliefs and greedy ways. Beginning in January 1692, Reverend Paris's 9-year-old daughter Betty and 11-year-old niece Abigail Williams began having fits. During these fits, they were inconsolable, screaming, making strange sounds, claiming that they were being bitten and pinched, throwing things, and twisting themselves into all sorts of positions. A doctor was called, and he said that the supernatural was to blame. Later, another girl, 12-year-old Ann Putnam Jr., would come down with similar episodes. Ann was the daughter of Sergeant Thomas Putnam, and the Putnams were a long-established family in Salem, and at one point, they were very wealthy and notable. But over time, Thomas Putnam had watched the familial property and wealth be split and given to others, and so there wasn't much left for him other than the clout of saying that his family was on its third generation in Salem. This made Thomas Putnam a resentful and opportunistic man. He often had fights with his neighbors and had quickly befriended Reverend Paris after he gained power as the local minister. So the Paris family and the Putnams had young girls under the effects of these awful fits, and they were family friends, but I'm sure that's not important. Anyways, back to business. On February 29th, under pressure from the magistrates Jonathan Corwin and John Hathorne, Total sidebar here, but Nathaniel Hawthorne, the author of The Scarlet Letter, is actually from Salem, and this John Hathorne is his great-great-grandfather. Nathaniel added the W to his last name later in his life, probably to get away from this legacy, because John plays a big role here. Jonathan and John were local officials like judges, and they pressured the girls into telling them who caused their fits. They blamed three women. Sarah Good, a homeless woman who begged in the streets, Sarah Osborne, a poor elderly woman, and Tichuba, a Caribbean woman that was enslaved by the Paris family. Sarah Good was born in 1653, and her family was well off, but after her father died, his estate was tied up in litigation, and that left Sarah with basically nothing. Her first husband died in debt, and when she married her second husband, they took on the responsibility of that first husband's bills. The Goods had two young children, and they rented rooms around Salem Village, but they never had any one place to consistently call their home. Sarah was pregnant at the time of her arrest and trial, and her five-year-old daughter Dorothy was also accused of being a witch and was imprisoned for seven months, something that would scar her mentally for the rest of her life. Born in around 1643, Sarah Osborne was in her late 40s at the time of her arrest and was married to her second husband, a man that had previously been her indentured servant. And that's one way to pay your time off. Get it, Sarah? Aside from the scandal of possibly being her servant, it was also suspected that Sarah and her husband had lived together as a couple before their marriage. The drama. She was also an ill woman who didn't interact much with the rest of the community, probably because they were all gossiping about her hot Irish husband. Though we can't be sure of her name given at birth, her birthplace, or her age at this time, there's still a good bit of background available for Tichuba. It's possible that she sailed from Barbados with Samuel Paris in 1680, while he was still a bachelor and before he joined the ministry. She was a woman of average to small build and was particularly close to Betty Paris, the nine-year-old daughter of the family. She had been working for the family for at least a decade at the time she was accused and had even lived with them in Boston before moving to Salem. She ate meals with the Paris girls and would have likely slept with them at night. It's also possible that she was included in the accusations because she had made a witch cake for Betty after she began having fits. A witch cake is a mixture of rye flour and urine from the afflicted that is then cooked and fed to a dog. 
It's thought that the dog is then going to reveal the identity of the witch. Reverend Paris was enraged when he found out about the cake, and he beat Tichuba. Arrest warrants were issued for Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tichuba on February 29th, and that day they were arrested and then examined. On March 1st, they were brought before authorities to be interrogated. In a packed village meeting house, Good and Osborne denied all allegations. But when it finally came Tichuba's turn, it was as if the men knew what she was going to give them before she even muttered a word. Reporters sat up and waited with bated breath. Everyone was on the edge of their seat. She began her testimony with a denial, and the court basically told her to move on. They weren't interested in any of that. She then stated, The devil came to me and bid me serve him. John Hathorne pressed her further and demanded to know, Who was it that had tortured the girls? The devil, for all I know, said Tichuba, before going on to describe how a tall, white-haired man in a dark woolen coat had appeared to her with all of his animal accomplices. He ordered her to harm the girls, and if she denied, he would kill her. The devil asked if she would sign his book in her blood, and she did so. He was ever the gentleman, and he even told Tichuba that if she did what he asked, she could have his yellow canary. What a deal. Tichuba also stated that she had seen a hog, a large black dog, a red cat, a black cat, and a hairy creature walking upright on two legs. What are the odds that's Bigfoot? Huh? Any squatchers? No? Okay. She also said that she had seen another creature, but she didn't know exactly what to call it or how to describe it. This creature had wings and two legs with the head of a woman. Going on, she revealed that the other two accused women in the court had come to her in an attempt to keep her on the side of evil. One of the women had appeared to Tichuba the night before her arrest while the Paris family was at prayer, and with her little cat in tow, she had stopped Tichuba's ears so she couldn't hear the scripture, and Tichuba remained deaf sometime afterward. The other woman, she claimed, had been the winged creature that she struggled to describe. At the end of the day, Tichuba had answered at least 39 questions and continued to provide answers to any and everything that leaders would eventually ask her. If the magistrates and ministers of Salem Village had been looking for confirmation of their fears, they found it in Tichuba. Even though English wasn't her first language, the testimony that was given by Tichuba that day was so strong that it propelled the next nine months' haunting actions. She spoke with a clear mind, and later on when she was re-questioned over her original statements, she gave answers that were so detailed yet so vague, the men felt that they had to be the truth. These first three women are the most well-known of the accused in Salem, and this is due to them being, well, the first, because of the flowery and fantastical testimony that was given by Tichuba, and because even with all that she said, Tichuba was the only three of these women to survive 1692. Sarah Good never confessed, but she did accuse Sarah Osborne of harming the girls after she saw the young children fall down in pain during a court session. There was only one person who came forward in Sarah Good's defense. One of the girls had accused Sarah of stabbing her and produced a knife tip as evidence, and a man came forward and produced the knife from which the tip had been broken. He said that the accusing girl had been present while the knife had been broken, so he knew she was lying about Good stabbing her. Sarah's own husband even was basically on the side of her guiltiness, stating that he didn't think she was a witch, but he thought it was possible that she was on the path to becoming one. Sarah gave birth to her baby in prison, where it died shortly before she was hung. She was executed by hanging on July 19, 1692, and per the Puritan tradition, she was asked to confess and save her immortal soul before she died. Instead, Sarah Good said, quote, You're a liar. I am no more a witch than you are a wizard. If you take away my life, God will give you blood to drink. End quote. Sarah Osborne died in prison on May 10, 1692, and when she was asked why she worked with the devil, she responded that she was more likely to be bewitched than she was to be a witch. And just like her origins, it's not entirely clear what happened to Tichuba. Reverend Paris was pissed, pun intended, about the witch cake, and then even more angry after Tichuba began to recant her confession almost a year later in prison. Ultimately, she spent 13 months in jail until an unknown person paid the seven pounds to get her out. It's unknown what happened to her after she left the jail and began her new life with this mystery person. 
On May 27th, Massachusetts Governor William Phipps ordered the establishment of a special court of Oyer and Turbiner to oversee the cases of witchcraft. The first woman to be brought in front of this special court was Bridget Bishop, and she had been accused by the girls on April 16th and arrested just three days later. She was brought in front of the girls and examined, and there the children writhed and convulsed in agony. Anne Putnam Jr. declared, she calls the devil her god, and Bridget Bishop responded, quote, I never saw these persons before, nor I never was in this place before. I am as innocent as the child unborn. I am innocent of a witch, end quote. No matter what she had to say, the examiners and the leaders believed the girls, and when she was tried in the court of Oyer and Terminer, she was found guilty. Bridget Bishop didn't have a great reputation around Salem, and she was a frequent visitor to the courts. Her relationship with her second husband was violent, and they were brought to court for fighting in 1670, where her neighbor testified to seeing Bridget's face bloodied and bruised on multiple occasions. Bridget would later be brought to court for using foul language against her husband, probably because he sucks and he hits her, but whatever, and she was even accused of witchcraft after his death by her stepchildren, but there wasn't enough evidence at that time. It was different in 1692, though. A lack of evidence wasn't enough in this court, and on June 10th, Bridget Bishop was the first person hung in Salem for the crime of witchcraft on what would later be called Gallows Hill. Something that was peculiar about the court of Oyer and Terminer was its acceptance of something called spectral evidence. After the execution of Bridget Bishop, there was a three-week pause in accusations, almost as if the people stopped to look around and be like, are we really going to do this? The court leaders consulted the Massachusetts state magistrate on what evidence they should and shouldn't be allowing in their courtrooms. Spectral evidence, the main thing that they were discussing, is an apparition or specter of someone that has made a pact with the devil. This pact allows them to take on this spirit-like form and appear to those that they wish to cause harm to. Anne Putnam Jr. had claimed that Sarah Osborne's specter had pricked her with a knitting needle. The allowance of spectral evidence as a fact was not a common practice at this time, and though the state said they didn't love that it was the sole basis for a lot of the accusations, they said they knew that witches existed, so it was better to find them and to kill them with spectral evidence than it was to not find them at all. So the magistrates went back to Salem and allowed this evidence to be taken as fact. And if you had these accusations put against you, there was literally nothing you could do to deny them. It was your word against theirs. The court not only allowed spectral evidence, but also allowed huge crowds of people into the courtrooms, making it one terrified person and maybe a few of their leftover supporters against a stuffy, crowded room of Satan-screaming Puritans who probably smelled like the most god-awful B.O. you could imagine. By the summer, hunting witches and accusing them had become a spectacle and a form of entertainment for the townspeople. The accusers grew in number by the day and gained an almost celebrity-like status amongst their fellow citizens. And at the top of this were the originals, 11-year-old Abigail Williams, 9-year-old Betty Paris, and 12-year-old Ann Putnam Jr. The only way to shake a charge and be spared was to admit to witchcraft, describe what you had been doing, and then implicate two to three other people. So you can see how one accusation quickly becomes three, which becomes nine, which becomes 27, which becomes the more than 100 people that were accused in Salem alone. I mentioned a bit earlier that the first three women and Bridget had all been examined. This was a part of the accusations of witchcraft that was incredibly humiliating and dehumanizing for these people. After being arrested, the accused would be stripped naked and examined for witch's marks. Sometimes these were simple moles or scars on the body that leaders would proclaim to be the mark of the devil, and other times they claimed that these were extra nipples that a witch would use to suckle animals and demons. And as ridiculous as it sounds, if a third nipple is a sign of a pact with the devil, then that kind of makes sense. Like, how else is Harry Styles so successful? My man's got four! Anyway, these spots on witches were thought to be immune to pain or to pricks, and these examinations would often take place in front of an audience with the use of a needle or other instrument. Some Puritans even went so far as to scratch off or try to remove any blemishes on their skin that could have been used as evidence. But this helped little, because any scars or damage that remained would just be called a witch's mark anyway. 
Other tests to see if one was a witch included being asked to recite the Lord's Prayer, where if you couldn't finish, you were obviously possessed, but if you were successful, it was just a trick of the devil. And another that you're probably familiar with was called the sink or swim test. Here the accused would be tied up in the fetal position with rocks tied to their ankles. They would then be thrown into a body of water. If they were a witch, the water would reject them and they would float. If they sunk, they weren't a witch, but they were probably still going to die because they were being weighed down by rocks and they had rope tied around their entire body. In jail, witches were tortured and denied water. They were chained in iron shackles to keep them from being able to use their powers. They were also hogtied with their neck to their feet until blood dripped from their eyes and their nostrils. One man, Giles Corey, was tortured by pressing in an attempt to get his confession. He was laid between two boards and rocks were added to the top until he either confessed or died. Corey died after three days of this torture. Most of the accused in Salem were women who lived on the fringes of their society, but the first man to be accused was John Proctor and he was a well-established and trusted business owner in the area, so why was he chosen? When the accusations first began in 1692, John was skeptical. His wife Elizabeth had been accused by Ann Putnam Jr. early in the chaos. The proctor's servant, Mary Warren, had become interested in the ongoing cases, and though the proctors tried to keep her from attending the trials, she just couldn't keep away. Mary Warren began having fits in April, and John, in an attempt to make them stop, took matters into his own hands, stating that he was going to beat the devil out of her. Okay, Bob Ross. Beatings like these weren't unusual for women and servants in Puritan New England. Children and servants were at the bottom of the totem pole and often faced the brunt of physical anger. Now, I haven't mentioned it this far in, but I have to now. John Proctor did not have a relationship with Abigail Williams as it's depicted in The Crucible. That's just from the author's 1950s misogynistic always-needs-sex-man brain. In reality, John was in his 60s and had had, I think, 17 children by this time, and Abigail was 11. And it's actually pretty likely that they didn't even know each other until all of this started happening. There is a possibility, though, that John Proctor had a sexually abusive relationship with Mary Warren, and that could have been to blame for her fits as well as his rage in response to them. Later on, Mary would testify that she pulled Proctor's spirit into her lap, and John would call Mary his jade. And at first, John's beating worked, and Mary apologized. She even went so far as to write a note and said that the other girls were lying, nailing it to the meeting house. The other young girls in the village began to turn on Mary, and she was actually accused and arrested with Bridget Bishop. At some point, she realized it was either her or the Proctors. She accused John and his wife of being involved in witchcraft, and they were charged and taken to jail. As their trial dates approached, John wrote a letter on July 23rd to five Boston ministers in which he described the jail conditions and the treatment of prisoners. He expressed that he felt the court proceedings were being done in haste, and he asked if the trials could be moved to Boston. His request was not granted. Two petitions in support of the Proctors from neighbors in Salem and Ipswich were also presented, but they had no effect. The trials went on as scheduled on August 2nd, and John and Elizabeth were both convicted of witchcraft, both largely on the basis of spectral evidence. Elizabeth, though, received a stay of execution because it had been discovered that she was pregnant. On August 19th, John was loaded into a cart that was pulled through the town and taken to the hanging tree where he was the last man to be hung that day. Before him went Martha Carrier, George Jacobs, John Willard, and Reverend George Burroughs. When Reverend Burroughs was brought up to the hangman's ladder and asked for his confession, he instead chose to recite the Lord's Prayer and did so perfectly. The crowd tried to intervene, stating that this must be a man of God, but another minister that was present reminded them that reciting the Lord's Prayer was just a clever trick of the devil to try and get them to spare Burroughs, and the execution went on. These were short-style hangings, like that of the Tallinn man that we discussed in the Bog Bodies episode. This is a more gruesome version, and it's not the long-hanging gallows style that you know from the movies. The short hang is intended to strangle the victim rather than break their neck and provide a swift, air quotes around that guys, swift death. 
In this style of hanging, the carotid, jugular, and trachea are compressed after the victim is pushed from the hangman's ladder, and this leads to convulsions and spasms of the body, which could have easily been seen as further evidence of witchcraft. By the end of the summer and the start of the fall, the accusation machine was starting to lose its steam. Thomas Brattle, a well-educated Boston merchant that served as treasurer of Harvard College, wrote a letter to an English clergyman that helped bring all the chaos to an end. In this letter, Brattle criticized the procedures that had been used in court and presented compelling arguments against the legal premise. He condemned the executions and came hard against the validity of spectral evidence that was being used in the trials. The letter was circulated widely in England and then again in Massachusetts. Its contents greatly impacted Massachusetts Governor William Phipps, and on October 8th, he ordered that reliance on spectral evidence and other intangible facts could no longer go on in trials. Three weeks later, on October 29th, he prohibited any further arrests, released many of the accused, and dissolved the special court of Oyer and Terminer. After nine months, the issue had ended just as quickly as it had begun. In an attempt to forget what had taken place, any writing or documents about the event were banned. Books and pamphlets over the matter were burned in the streets, and the exact location of the execution site was destroyed. In the end, 19 people were hung, 5 died in jail, and of course Giles Corey was pressed to death. And in the years following the trials and executions, some involved, like Judge Samuel Sewell and accuser Ann Putnam Jr., would publicly confess to their error and guilt. In 1711, the Massachusetts legislature passed a bill clearing the names of some of the accused and granted restitution to their families. Bridget Bishop's family and several others did not come forward to accept the restitution or to be named in the bill, and therefore their names were not cleared at this time. John and Elizabeth Proctor were among the names that were cleared, and their family received 150 pounds in restitution, around $11,000 today. More than 200 years later, in 1957, the Massachusetts State Legislature officially apologized for the Salem Witch Trials and cleared the names of, quote, one Anne Pudator and certain other persons, end quote, but failed to mention the remaining victims by name. Come on, guys. In 1992, marking the 300th anniversary of the event, the Salem Witch Trials Memorial was built in Salem. Later in 2001, the Massachusetts State Legislature amended the 1957 apology and finally cleared the names of Bridget Bishop, Susanna Martin, Alice Parker, Wilmot Red, and Margaret Scott. In 2017, historians worked to find the location of the original hanging tree and the Proctor's Ledge Memorial was built in Salem, Massachusetts. And finally, last year, in July 2022, Elizabeth Johnson Jr., the last convicted Salem witch whose name had not been cleared, was officially exonerated after a successful lobbying campaign by a class of 8th graders in Massachusetts. The long-standing question when it comes to Salem is why, and I feel like while we do get the answer on part of the why, we never really get a satisfying one. We don't know what came over the young girls or why they began to act erratically in the first place. Early explanations for what happened here were chalked up to being ergotism, which as we learned in the Dancing Plague episode, it's just not very likely. But we can compare Strasbourg and the Dancing Plague to Salem in this way. It was also a perfect storm. Everything in this story is swept up and thrown together to make this wildly fascinating and hard-to-believe tale that feels almost impossible under our modern lens. But when you pull back and look at the bigger picture, the answers are all right there in front of you. It was through a combination of intense indoctrination and harsh church politics, familial and property feuds, and hysterical young children, all happening within the echo chamber of a religious and social authority that loomed in Salem, that this took place. And when you put yourself into the brass-buckled shoe of a Puritan, it really starts to come together. This is history that everyone intended to be forgotten, but by the grace of a letter and the passion of living relatives, we get to look back and see the power of checks and balances not only in government and in legal proceedings, but also in accusations laid upon the most vulnerable people in our societies. People who are experiencing homelessness like Sarah Good, people who love differently or are experiencing chronic illness like Sarah Osborne, people who are trying to put their lives back together after trauma like Bridget Bishop, and minorities like Tichuba. 
we're all bound together by our humanity. And in the most basic sense, that's what the people of Salem lost during all of this, their common humanity. If you are interested in learning more about anything that I've discussed this week, I'm going to go ahead and throw up some really cool uh, documentaries. I watched one documentary from the Smithsonian about finding Proctor's Ledge and kind of the research that went into it. And that one was really, really cool. Totally recommend. Thank you for everyone that uh, was patient with me. I did have some technical difficulties this week, so this episode is a little late getting out. Uh, I'm actually recording in the morning, which is very strange for me, but I kind of like it. I had some coffee, so I'm feeling a little jazzed. Got to go get this all edited up for y'all so you can hear it. Um, But just thank you for everything, guys. You have no idea how much it means to me and how thankful I am to just have your support and have, you know, an audience that allows me to grow through some of these mistakes and go through some of this stuff. And, you know, nobody wants technical difficulties. It's not a fun thing to have happen to you. But whenever you have an audience like mine, you know that it's all going to work out in the end. Well, guys, I think that's going to be it for me today. Go ahead and check out everything on Instagram. I do have a post up for this episode with some photos of Salem and some carvings. So I hope you'll join me next week in the pursuit to know a little bit about everything. Please follow the pod, like the episode, share with your friends. And most of all, guys, stay safe out there. Until next time. Thanks. Oh, my God.